that is the best thing I did in war. It wasn't the gunfights. It wasn't the disposal of ammunition. It was the fact that I made a difference in a child's life. I showed her the enemy wasn't scary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Flow Over Fear podcast, where it is our mission to help you to rise above fear and realize your ultimate potential in leadership and life. I'm your host, Adam Hill, and it is my goal to share with you the human side of high performance. My guests share their experience with fear, anxiety, struggle, challenge, and most importantly, despite all of it, how they rose above it to achieve incredible results. So if you're ready to rise up, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Flow Over Fear. And I'm really excited about this show today because I have one of my really good friends. And uh, if you have never been in the army or been in the military, it's really, really difficult for most of us cannot even begin to fathom what it's like to fight in a war, nor what it's like to experience PTSD. But for those that do, it's painful, debilitating, and far often a tragic experience that affects many veterans and civilians. And within the tragedy of PTSD, there are beacons of hope, and there are beacons of healing and empowerment that serve to use their experience as a platform for good. And representative of that is my guest today, Eric Beach. He is the co-founder of Project Echelon, a charitable foundation that helps educate, equip, and empower veterans through physical activity and sport. He also hosts the YouTube channel, The Journey Well, a place of ease, surrender, and growth through tarot. Yes, tarot, and we'll get into that in a bit later, and uh, self-development. And it's a damn good channel, if I do say so myself. He's a coach and mentor, a filmmaker, a speaker, a creator. He is a husband and a father, and I'm proud to call him my friend. Man, this page is long with all the stuff you do, Eric Beach. Uh, he's here with me today to share his wisdom and how he continues to rise above fear. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me, Adam, as always. I am uh, super, super pumped to have you here because I, I, your story is just, it's amazing. And I want to share about how we met because... When we met, I was in full imposter mode, imposter syndrome mode. I was, uh, uh, we had just uh, been cast for a show called Iron Man Quest for Kona. Uh, Eric is also an Iron Man uh, finisher, finished two full Iron Mans, a number of 70.3s, number of triathlons, part of his total badassedness. Uh, but when we met, we were, we had, we'd been cast on this, on this show and it was going to feature 10 Iron Man athletes on their quest to, to achieve the world championship. And of course, when I was cast, the very first thing I did was I looked up everybody else who was on the show and I immediately felt overwhelmed and intimidated <laughs> because the very first video I saw was <laughs> Eric Beach talking about his military service, talking about PTSD, talking about how he started a foundation to help other uh, military people who are, who are struggling with overcoming that through sport. And I was just so inspired and I'm so privileged that you became such a good friend. Uh, over over the last uh, few years. So can you, uh, uh, so I want to go back in time and, and just talk about your uh, your service, but I want to start from, you know, where you were as a child. Tell, tell us about young Eric Beach and uh, what, what you experienced, what your mindset was like back when you were a kid. Yeah. So uh, that's a wonderful reflection. And I want to jump into that too, because there's so much wrapped up in that. But uh, the, the the little me was a creative kid. I, you know, from the ages, I don't know, up to like five or six, I was a really outgoing kind of happy-go-lucky, uh, lost in my own imagination, big imagination, a kid, like to rough and, like rough and tumble wrestle, whatever. And then around age eight, I think things changed because that world experience shifted in the hands of an abusive man, not my father. My father, he was a very good man, but a very angry man and a, a man that had his own shadow and his own wounds. And he was breaking a cycle of abuse that he experienced by doing it better than his dad did and so on and so forth up the generations comes down to me, you know, and so now I'm getting the chance to rectify what I didn't like that he did. But at any rate, his anger mixed with the abuse from other men outside the family uh, was one that took my voice and shrunk it 
And I, mm-hmm. I, I remember this other day I was going through, we just moved to Milwaukee a year ago. I'm going through files and stuff. And I find these things that we keep from childhood, like the second grade reports and, and different things where teachers write notes. And I, you know, I'm 38 now and I'm like, well, let's look and, and see and not thinking anything of it. But then I found two things that were really interesting. The first one was a collection of baseball cards that I had uh, in it. I had this vanilla paper and this has got to be, I don't know, second, second grade. And I wrote scratched into this. I took all the stickers from all the baseball teams I collected and it was like my thing, you know, organize it. And every card I got, I would make the stickers and it was this beautiful experience, but I was alone and I wrote on top of it, uh, people like you. Mm. And it really gutted me because Mm. I was this little kid, whether I had reason to or not, I believe that everyone hated me, that I was worthless at a very young age. And that Mm. set the standard for me. I had to write people like you in this little notebook, no one would ever see. And that broke my heart. And then I went and I saw the, the, the grade reports of how Eric is an outgoing class. He offers so much to the class. We just love having him. And around the time of the abuse, that message changed. The Hmm. teachers now wrote, he's reclusive. He's shying away. He's lost energy. Like they didn't say I lost energy. They didn't know me any different. They just said that I didn't have it and that I was reclusive. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like this, that's a mark in history that I didn't remember. But now I know because of these things I experienced, I created a worldview that took all of my creativity, all of my desires and pressed it underneath this box of trauma, as well as worldviews from a very strict Christian upbringing that said, Mm -hmm. these things like tarot are bad. They are evil. They're gateways to hell. They are not. But as a child, you believe what your parents say and you replicate that environment. So I started to go on this path of failure, intentional failure. I didn't realize it. I would do something very good be a natural at it. This carries over to Iron Man, which we can talk about. I was naturally gifted at things, could pick things up very quickly. And I would get a little bit of praise. And then I'd be too afraid because I started to get attention. And when Mm. I got attention, that's when I got touched. That's when I got hurt. So Mm. I didn't like that. I like to get a little granule of it. And then I'd retreat before it got to be too intense. And that was my narrative. And I had a lot of depression, had a lot of suicidal ideation all the way through uh, middle school and high school. And it wasn't even that big of a deal, the things that happened to me in certain moments, but it was the biggest deal in the world because I was looking in my world to find reasons why I shouldn't be here. And when you look that hard, you will find answers everywhere. And so that was, that was childhood me. Wow. So, so you, so let's kind of dig into that. So, so the, so you were you were outgoing at one time. So you had that attitude of like everybody loved you and, and everybody, but that that switch flipped on your script, on the perspective that you were telling yourself that uh, that you weren't enough. And so you had to actually have that affirmation of of no, people like me. And so tell us about how that switch flipped, if if you would. Like how what was the was the traumatic experience within family? Was it in you mentioned the church? Or you yeah, there's talk- there's so many things. And, you know, it's it's like picking one incident. I've never been able to do that, but I've got a series of them. And whenever I speak about my father, I'm not here to tell you that he was bad, mm-hmm. but I do believe we have to unpack the things we didn't like. And he had a temper. Like if I made one mistake, like uh, I, I had a protractor, 25 cents, something like that. I left it out and my dog chewed it up and ate it. And he laid into me. Like I had just crashed the car. So you're telling us your dog ate your homework? Is that that what I'm hearing? Or at least a tool to do it. (laughs) Not the homework. I couldn't do the homework because the tool was eaten at him. That's right. You took it to to another level, Eric. My teachers are never going to believe me. (laughs) Okay, so teachers, that's another one. This this is where it really did shift in a lot of ways. So I I did have uh, a bad experience with Cub Scouts where Mm. the leader had uh, touched me inappropriately. That was one of two men in my life that touched me inappropriately. The other one was a band teacher in mm-hmm. private lessons. And so these were very much rooted in, I love music. It still moves my soul. I perform, I love it. And he took that from me in a way, mm-hmm. this yeah. man. And I, uh, I really think that the shift came around fifth grade because up till then, you know, I'm, I'm kind of dodging my dad and anger and all that stuff. But then in fifth grade, my dad runs, not runs, but he, he writes to the school board about the school that shouldn't be made. And he makes good. He's a brilliant man. He was, he's passed since uh, eight years ago, but he was a brilliant man with it. He wasn't wrong. And that 
bothered the hell out of me because he was always right, it seemed like. And I'm like, you mother... <laughs> you know, yeah, but could chill out a little bit, you know. Right. But right. so he was right. And these people attacked him because yeah. Don Beach is against school and hates children, you know, all this stuff. And it was really hard on him. Mm-hmm. And then the train company that he worked for went on strike and he went and worked in the factories and he was going through a lot. And he just wanted a little respect for me. And I didn't give it to him because I didn't feel he was safe. So we just always had this back and forth, never communicate, just respect me. No, respect me. No. You know, this kind of dance. Talk yeah. about it. hell no. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and so we're doing this dance. And then the teachers at my school know who I am. They know who my father is and start to take it out on me. Oh they start gosh. to isolate me. They lose my homework and I fail fifth grade or I'm going to. Wow. Until my dad comes to the school and says, you know, well, how is this possible? And they said, well, he didn't turn in his homework, his, his assignment that is worth a quarter or three quarters of his grade, whatever. I don't remember. And then my dad looks at the wall where all of the artwork is, all of these big projects we worked on all year. And he's like, what's that? And they're like, oh, there it is. We are so sorry. And, and so what I didn't realize was that he then, to protect me, made me take this sheet of paper that every teacher had to write everything good and bad I did every single day. Uh, And I had to bring it home. And so like I would walk home with this paper of the bad stuff that I did all the way a mile and a half, whatever, going, I'm dead, you know, so but he did that to help me and it broke the cycle. I didn't know that until he's dead. You Mm -hmm. know, like we never had those conversations. So I'm just formulating all these things like he doesn't care for me. Like people are just out to get me. I can't trust adults. I can't trust people in positions of power. So that was my psychodrama. Hmm. That's that's talk about. Talk about a traumatic experience, having to demonstrate not, I mean, kids are already under enough pressure already trying to demonstrate to teachers that they're enough, you know, all that, all that kind of <laughs> stuff and, and doing that kind of stuff. But yeah. for you to have to go that extra step and be, be brought into this drama, this politics, uh, that's, that's a lot. That's a heavy, heavy load for somebody who's eight or nine years old. And, and on top of that, you know, the additional trauma mm-hmm. that you face. So how did, uh, so you say you took that into middle school and high school, and um, how, how did that? How did those years start to look for you? They started to look like I was a clown. Mm. I was. Uh, I. I think the pattern goes. I don't know who I am, so I'm going to figure out what makes me different than the other kids and my humor. I was able to make my friends laugh more than my other friends might have been able to laugh, and so I leaned into that heavy. I didn't act out in class really or anything like that, but. If we were in a group, all I wanted to do was laugh. All I wanted to do is make them laugh. And when I didn't, I reinforced that I am, in fact, a piece of garbage. <laughs> and now I don't fit in because it was one piece of myself that was responsible for all of my joy. Yeah. And so I did carry that energy to every single relationship, every piece of value. I had uh, I had these girls that I had crushes on in middle school. And all of a sudden, I started getting these love letters. And I'm like, oh, secret admirer, this is my dream come true. And I did this like scientific investigation because one of the letters had lipstick on it. And kids in middle school, girls aren't wearing lipstick except for these one, except for this one girl in my class that day who was my crush. And I was like, hell yes. Not that I would have known what to do with her if we went on a date. Probably go bowl (laughs) together. I don't know. Yeah. Mom's going to drive you in her minivan to uh, to bowling alley. Yeah. So I get this letter and then I figure out who it is. And it's both of the girls that I had crushes on. And then they tell me that it was just a prank. And it like gutted me to the point where I was like, I was so excited. And then I was so devastated. And so like, there's a narrative of trust and always like, you know, watching for who's going to, my dad would say, expect the worst, hope for the best, that kind of thing. So never take anything as a gift, like always be like, oh, appreciate that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But carrying into, uh, high school, it just gets more because you get hormones on board. And, you know, I I had some bullying and stuff that I went through. And, you know, I just learned through my abuse from the men to just Mm -hmm. kind of tunnel vision. And so whenever chaos happened, I just lock in, don't say a word, just kind of keep moving and hope it just goes away. And that's what I did with all my problems was just hope it goes away. Hope this ends soon, you know, and until one day, Uh, This is the power of teachers, the true power of teachers. I was a junior or senior. I can't remember which. I was a junior. And our choir director, uh, he said, he was this incredible speaker, nationally known, just Mm -hmm. we're so lucky to have him. And he said, you know, graduation is coming around to you seniors. If the only mistake you make in high school is tripping when you go to get your diploma, you've wasted your four years here. 
now is the time to explore. Now is the time to fail and try things to see if you like it because you don't know until you try it. And I was like, he is right. And then I started to go out and do things in front of kids. I started to broaden my horizons. I acted in a, a musical. I did a talent show. I won the talent show. I sang in Agata DeVita and broke dance, you know, <laughs> in spandex and I won, you know, so, and people started going, who the hell is this guy? You know? And uh, yeah, so I started to have a lot of fun and, and, you know, I got a standing ovation here. I got two standing ovations in high school in my senior year because wow. I started to, to go out and do things. And I fell in love with that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 9-11 happens and, well, I'm going to get to change course and I want to go serve my country because my dad, he was uh, drafted in Vietnam and always said, go to spend two years in the military to grow up. Everyone should do it. I disagree mm -hmm. with that, but I understood at the time what he meant because he was a, a class clown too. Sure. And uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of my high school summary. Well, so yeah, I, I and I, I want to kind of just put a pin in that regarding the, the teacher because teachers are powerful. I have, mm -hmm. I have a lot of good friends that are, that are great teachers and I, I want to thank them a lot because they just, they do so much for our world more than, more than they know. And more than they're paid for, for sure. Because, I mean, they're just influencing the lives of hundreds of kids mm -hmm. every single year. And so the power to say that, you know, it's almost, it, it sounds like that choir director, uh, by saying, you know, that now is the time to fail, gave you permission to be yourself. Am I right in that? Or does yeah. That, yeah. Because that's a, and the thing, his name's Paul Gulsvig. And mm. the thing about it was he didn't have to speak directly to me. Because it's general for everybody. That's a universal yeah. truth. You have to explore. And to this day, one of I I, I don't like my birthday, uh, partly because of of something that happened in Iraq. But I look forward to every year he writes me a happy birthday message, custom personalized to me every really? year. Wow. And he does it to almost every one of his students. Like you just incredible. go. So he's writing 10, 20 personal birthdays plus all he's doing, and it makes a big deal to everybody that he does it to. I look Absolutely. forward to it every year. One of my favorite yeah. gifts. Yeah. That's the power of a, the power of a personal note from somebody mm -hmm. that, that means a lot to you. I mean, that's such a simple thing. And, and if anybody hears this, you know, take out a, take out a thank you note, take out a, just a, a blank card. Think of somebody who means a lot to you and just write them a note, send it to them. I guarantee you're going to change the trajectory of that person's day. I mean, it's just, it's uh, incredible. So, uh, uh, so yeah, so that giving you the freedom to be yourself opened up those doors. So those next, that next year or so was just, was, was greater for you because you were being yourself, but then nine 11 happens. You have this draw, whether it's from, you know, the, the experience of your dad or, 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 uh, or just the personal draw to join the military. So tell us how that came about. What, what happened there? I think the one thing that you might I didn't say is I was really ruled by fear in many ways. It's, it's just afraid and fear for me is rooted in death at a primal sense, you know, mm -hmm. that I'll be cut out from my group and I'll be alone and the lone wolf dies. And so in this moment of ang like I get angry when I'm afraid I react and I, that's how I'd rather fight you physically than have a conversation at that time yeah. just because that's how my body would react. And so when 9-11 happens, I have the same reaction. You know, after the like, are you kidding me? This is happening. I wanted to fight someone. Mm -hmm. And so I applied to first 3D animation in uh, Madison. I didn't get accepted. So my alternative was 9-11 happens. And I'm like, okay, well, that's my sign. The universe says, go fight. Now, the problem is that I was also expecting the military to teach me what it was to be a man because I didn't have an understanding of what it meant to be. And if I went and I didn't go Rangers, but I, if I went to the army Rangers and special forces, nobody could ever again question my manhood and nobody could ever say I'm weak. And that's mm -hmm. what I was looking for is I don't want anyone. And I've realized this through Iron Man. No one will tell me that I am weak because I am not weak. I am going to show myself that I am not weak. So no one can ever put me in that position to make me feel that way again. No, yeah, thank so, you. So you're validating yourself through that, through yeah. that, trying to validate mm -hmm. this, this, this manhood that you wanted to wanted to show yourself that you were you had that uh, quality, yeah, under the guise of patriotism, which yeah. there was that, sure. But I think most veterans would say, yeah, patriotism is part of it, but there's a lot of other reasons we go into the service, and mm -hmm. so sometimes it's tough to be 
called a super patriot or like, yeah, forgotten country. And I'm like, no, nah, not, not quite, you know, yes, but no, there's so much more to right. it than that. And, uh, you know, when you're in, in the desert and things are going wrong, you're not thinking about your country. You're thinking about this guy and this guy, yeah. you know, th- that's all. So it changes depending on the situation you're in. And so it's, it's more nuanced than that. But yeah, I, I wanted to serve. So graduated high school and went right to basic training that summer. Hmm. Wow. And so how long between 9-11 and when you joined, how long was that? See here. What is it? Do the math for me. September to July. Okay. So just a few months. Let's just say a few months because I don't want to do math either. Me either. (laughs) Somewhere between one and 12 months. Yeah. This is not a math (laughs) show, folks. This is... uh, I have a traumatic brain injury. I can't do math. Yeah. Well, in fact, uh, uh, this show is called Flow Over Fear and I'm afraid of math. And (laughs) uh, so we'll not even explore that. It's such a fear. And let's not even get over it. Let's but. not talk about numbers, Adam. I'm not, I'm not ready. Right. <laughs> so, um, so let's, let yeah. So let's talk about something more pleasant than math. War. Okay. No. War. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, sorry. But no, uh, uh, so yeah. Uh, so you, you, you get, uh, so you get into the military. Uh, are you, so are you basic training and then how long between basic training and when you get to uh, see the service or you start to get deployed? What, what well, does I that did. look like? I did once I did, it's called OSUT training. So it's one-stop unit training, yeah. something like that. So it was zero week plus nine weeks of basic. And then it rolled into 17 weeks of AIT. I believe the math was. So essentially it was 21 weeks that I was okay. in the same barracks with the same guys uh, that basic rolled into AIT. And so November, uh, November, I think, uh, so it was July to November. I want to say I was in training before I went to the regular army. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, gotcha. And then and then when you were deployed, where did you go? What, uh, what did that look like? Uh, and, and what was that experience of being deployed? What did that look like for you? It was, a, it was just a really nice summer abroad. You know, sure. got to see the yeah. world. Uh, yeah. Not quite That's... Europe, but Europe adjacent. And yeah, <laughs> it's lovely. <laughs> if you don't like clouds, it was a fantastic trip. None oh, in the sky. Yeah. So the, the, the thing that I, I say, because there was this one day, probably mid-tour, and a general comes through as generals do to kind of just walk and see like, hello, men, hello, women. How's my fighting force? Good. Mm-hmm. I'll see you next year, you know, and then leave or whatever. Uh, so they bring a couple people from every unit to this lunch and I got selected for whatever reason. I don't know because I'm awesome. Uh, anyway, I was chosen. And so I didn't realize it, but he went through every single person. Stand up and tell you what the best part about being in war is, which I thought was a really strange question. Wow, but that is a weird question. <laughs> like, like, are you trying to validate yourself and make yourself feel okay? Like, they like being here. They like being here. I'm not right. a bad man. You know? right. <laughs> so it gets to me, and I had time to think about it. And, the, you know, everyone's uh, serving my country. And so my family can sleep safe at night. And I'm like, really? I, I, I get it. But I haven't thought about that at all. Am I a jerk? Mm-hmm. Maybe. I just realized that they can't hurt us over here more than one blitzkrieg kind of attack, you know, so they're not going to jump in boats and, and come to our country and fight us. We're, we're okay there. Right. Uh, but I realized that that was the first time in my life where I felt every single human emotional possible. And it mm. was, it was only in six, six months or so. And sometimes it was in the same day. Like I, I felt hate. I felt love. I felt grief. I felt longing. Hmm. I felt desire. I felt lonely. I felt connected. I felt everything possible to feel. And that is a spiritual experience. And I wish there was a way to experience it without it being in war. Hate does fade. I can tell you that. Hate, I learned about Hmm. because I didn't hate. I thought, you know, you say that you hate things. Yeah. Uh, You don't, you don't really hate things. You strongly dislike things, you know, but we are overseas and we have this enemy who traditionally is wrapped in head wraps or looks a certain way and they capture two of your guys. And after three days, you find them executed. I hated those people, those people, not that person, those people. And all of a sudden I'm walking around with a gun saying, anyone give me a reason. Mm -hmm. I'm 18, 19 with a gun saying, someone give me a reason to shoot you. And I mean it. Hey everyone, if you're listening to this show and you want to rise above fear and achieve greater flow in your life, which of course translates into better results in business, better health, a more fulfilling lifestyle, and much, much more. And who doesn't, right? Well, then schedule your free strategy call with me today. Simply go to www.adamcliffordhill.com slash coaching 
and click on the link to start your journey to your high flow life. So hate, so hate there, the difference between hate and dislike. So you mentioned, you kind of, you kind of said, uh, uh, specify that difference there. So most people just strongly dislike things like strongly dislike Limburger cheese. Yes. But hate goes that, goes that farther, farther direction of, of you are willing to kill. I think my definition of of strongly disliking something is you wish it wasn't in your life. Mm-hmm. Hate is you wish it didn't exist. So yeah. to wish something out of existence is a different energy than saying, I'm just not going to buy Lindberger cheese. Sure, sure. If it's at the party, I'm going to not eat it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <You> right. <know? laughs> and, and so you say that hate fades. How, mm-hmm. how did, so, uh, and, and I want to get into exploring, feeling all the emotions and how war in particular drew, drew you into that. But I want to, I want to narrow down on that really quick, which is the hate fades. Because I know that there's probably a lot of people that that resonates with because they're probably feeling this, at least this feeling of strong dislike. And it may be, may be rooted in fear. It may be rooted in in something that's unhealthy. But they might, you know, welcome that idea of, well, how? How does that fade? What 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 is the process by which that fades? Interaction. Interaction. It's the thing that you hate, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I, I realized... As I hated, I started to realize, and we're driving and we're seeing these kids playing soccer and realizing that I don't hate these people. You know, what a terrible thing to say. So I'm a sensitive yeah. guy. So it, it's a, sometimes a faster response to me. But sitting with dignitaries, sitting with the children, talking with them, I had the most impactful experience of my entire life was in that same deployment. Like I said, hate to my heart is broken. How could I ever feel this way? And happened on this one day that best day of my life, also one of the worst, but the best part of my day on that day, as we're driving into this town, there's a bunch of crowd, which isn't good. Alert, alert. There is now a truck on its side. There's people crushed under it. And so we get out and we have a reaction force. Like we, we know what we do. In this case, I have my M249 machine gun. I set up a perimeter on this part. This person goes 25 meters away and, and we just guard while the, the, the medics go save the life or treat the person. And so we're doing that. And this group of about 10 kids starts to approach me. I'm 25, 30 meters away from the nearest soldier. And I have the authorization to shoot. And I'm thinking, I'm not, I can't. But I tell him to stop. If I give him two commands to stop, I'm authorized to fire. And I knew I wasn't going to do that. And I knew I was sacrificing my life life for, you know, ultimately a group of people that I hated. Mm-hmm. I hated the act. I didn't hate the people. Yeah. I just blame them. It's like saying, I hate the Vikings or whatever sports team you want. Like, no, you don't. It's what the stand, it's what the meaning is attached to the sure. freaking color and the it's, it's not about people right get over, it, you know, like, so, but I got over it because I let these kids come. I realized that I had a heart and I couldn't take it out on children. It was these adults that were so skewed in their beliefs that I was mad at. And we're just two warring factions that actually don't care about what we're fighting for. We're just told to care. And so we're fighting. And it's, yeah. I mean, there's, I, I've thought about that over years. So this isn't in the moment, but this, these, these kids walk up, we're talking. Samir is one of the boys. He speaks wonderful English. So I'm assuming he's probably like the mayor or the, I don't know their political structure, but he's a notable child and their father is well known. And so we're communicating, you know, are you safe? What, what are you here for? And I'm explaining the role of a soldier and, and how we aren't here to hurt you. Because if you see us in uniform, you can know that you're safe as long as you don't approach, you're good. Mm-hmm. But if we can't tell who the enemy is, we have no ability to feel safe. So that's why we're really like standoffish. And I struck a chord with this girl. She was six, seven, something like that. And she comes through the crowd. Her name is Asana, which means beauty in Arabic, I believe. And she Mm. was beautiful. And it really struck me like, I still see her, you know? And she reached out to me with this little broken piece of plastic. I don't know what it was. And I, I pushed her hand away and she started crying immediately. And she kind of ran to the back of the group. And I was like, what, Samir, what happened? And he said, that is her, her favorite toy. It's really one of the only things that she owns. And she wanted to give it to you because she believes you are good. And she was always afraid. And I was like broken, like just tell her to come here. And she comes back and I have a flak vest. I unbutton one of the snaps where, you know, we put things and put that there. She puts it on my chest. I snap it in and she's just happy. And so mm-hmm. I have this little piece of plastic. It looked like a broken Frisbee. It was nothing. She probably drew in the dirt with it. But it was meaningful to her and she gave it to me. 
And it changed me fundamentally in that moment. And I was like, that is the best thing I did in war. Mm. It wasn't the gunfights. It wasn't the disposal of ammunition. It was the fact that I made a difference in a child's life. I showed her the enemy wasn't scary. And to me, that's what I wanted when I was a kid. So I got to be that for this little girl in that moment. And it just like fundamentally shifted my perspective. And Mm. now when I feel angry and strong dislike towards people or a belief system, I know I have to sit with that feeling. And once I meet one of them and sit at a table with that person and hash out our differences and say, here, this bothered me, I find out that we don't disagree that much. It's just the ideology. It's just the verbiage. It's just the cause that we think we're fighting for. And we're ultimately good people. We just don't understand each other's motives. And that's what has stripped me from saying, like, I could never hate a person again. That's powerful. That is incredibly powerful because what you've demonstrated there is that the most impactful experiences, uh, at least from your perspective, for the, the most impactful experience in, in your wartime was an act of peace. And that just demonstrates that soldiers are not fighters. They're, they're peacemakers. I mean, they are peace. You know, I, I don't know if that resonates, with, or maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm speaking out of school, but that's no, I just- I agree with what you said. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's 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 a powerful, powerful story, and, and it's such a powerful note too to to take note of that that hate fades by through connection, through interaction. You know, uh, if we're feeling that, uh, maybe it's a it's it's an element of fear. Hate mm-hmm. is an element of fear, and it's an element of lack of understanding. And it's a and and that connection, that interaction, can be powerful, and that that really did. Um, you know, come from an act of, of courage or self-sacrifice in that case, because you were willing to put your life on the line to, you know, to, to be vulnerable in that, on that instance. So, uh, that's, that's an incredible story. So moving through that war, what was, what was, uh, uh, what was that experience like of coming, uh, of you've talked about coming back from war and how, it's it's a it's an interesting experience because the way you describe this is it's it was really impactful to me because it's something that I would never understand coming from the environment of of battle of war of which you spent a lot of time to you know this world of civilian life in the United States of of that kind of thing so what was that like and and was there anything else in that in that experience of of your deployments that uh, that you know, might have influenced how you came back the way you did. Well, yeah, the uh, the difference between war and a Friday night is a 14-hour flight. <laughs> and that's the craziest <laughs> thing of it, you know. Uh, so the uh, other thing that did impact me, there was, there was so many. I mean, it's so innumerable. But on the theme of my childhood, my uh, sergeant first class, he, we, were, we were in a firefight at one at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. And... He ducked down into his seat and didn't give us the command to engage the enemy. So I, as a specialist, I think at that time, told my vehicle to go black, which is flick to semi and engage the enemy. And after the gunfight, after the firefight and everything was fine, my leader said, I ain't going to lie. You know, smoke man was scared, you know, and I was so pissed Mm -hmm. because I am supposed to rely on you. You're the same guy who who made fun of me in front of the rest of the non-commissioned officers when we f- were in Kuwait waiting to come up to Iraq because I had cut myself in mm-hmm. rear detach and before we had deployed because I was in a a, a suicidal state and he's like hey I beat you. isn't that true did you cut yourself you used to cut yourself some shit like that oh, and I'm like yeah he's like ah oh, well you got over that right <laughs> this is crazy son of a bitch all right you can go and I was like he called me over to chastise me about my. Uh, cry for help or my 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 self-abuse that was manifesting some deep feelings from my childhood and stuff and and chose that time to make fun of me for it wow for whatever reason so yeah there was situations that did carry with me and it and it all was to fulfill this narrative because when we feel fear we want to feel safe so we have this uh, availability heuristic we have the confirmation bias so i'm filing away all of those things Mm -hmm. either saying uh you can't trust leadership or people just want to hurt you. They don't really care about you. So don't get too close. Yeah. And so what's a great way to not let anyone feel close to you? 
drinking a shitload of alcohol. Yeah. Well, relatable. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's a way to everyone and nobody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a way to alienate people right away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so drinking enters your life after you kind of can't, obviously you, you can't, you lose that trust of your leadership of the people that you're supposed to look up to and you start to, you start to drink heavily. Yeah. And, and, uh, so, and obviously that, 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 uh, uh uh, that sergeant was it a sergeant? Did you say or what? sergeant first class? Sergeant first class. So obviously he was succumbing to fear by you know kind of him taking care of himself first rather than his his team. Uh, so that's uh, uh, so fear is not the 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 ideal of a leadership is not fearlessness, but it is courage. I mean, there is you have to you you do have to rise about that level of fear, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you had the capability to do that, but uh, also leaned into alcohol too. So. Yeah. I feel like that is something that you said, uh, and I don't know if this is accurate for me, but it's clarity leads to courage. You know, like you have clarity and you can be courageous. And I, I, that resonates so deep with me, but there's something that's strange that I would rather, I'm not saying I want stuff to go wrong, but I feel the ability to react in those moments of trauma Mm -hmm. in, in war, uh, in, in a bar fight, in different situations, good or bad. Like if something's going on, I'm a good person to have with because I act. I don't, I, I, I think I see clearly and I act. I take good action. But if you give me a bad comment on Facebook, Look out. And, like, <laughs> and the problem I realize is there's nobody to fight. Yeah. It's my mind perceiving that there is a threat. And then I, those, I hate those worse. I hated the quiet moments in Iraq where nothing was happening more than when they finally shot at me. Because wow. it was the waiting for something to go wrong. Because then I was good. I was empowered when stuff went wrong. And mm-hmm. so I, I think maybe sometimes I sought those out because I knew who I was in those moments. In the gray, it sucks. Black and white, yeah. You know, if, if you're going to throw down, let's throw down. And I might get my ass whooped. Yeah. But yeah. at least we knew there was no gray area. You know. And I'm like, no, you need to live in the gray. But that's where it's scariest. Yeah. So you, you got your – so that clarity led to courage. But it was, it was also uh, – uh, so you found that you were validated by, you know, through the, through the action, through the fighting, almost through the, you know, okay, now, now I'm at my, now this is where I can perform. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so then, you know, your deployment's over, you're coming home. What was that? What was that like for you for as, as far as, as coming home for, for that? And how did that, how did that manifest into your, uh, um, you know, the more of the PTSD and that, that sort of element that you experience. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's an interesting process because they call it delayed onset post-traumatic stress disorder sometimes because mm-hmm. there's a coming down period and then life has to happen. And I think the accumulation of sleep loss is what factored into me finally saying I had a problem. I drank a lot drank very heavily. We all did. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair to say, uh, in my unit and we got disbanded. So that unit got shut down and we got filtered out. So then we lost connection to all those guys we served with, which was another trauma in a mm-hmm. sense, because please understand trauma is not just being molested or it's not just being beat. Trauma is anytime your world is causing you great upheaval. Like what? Like if it disturbs you, that's trauma. And so removing you from these brothers that I had served with that are the only ones who understood my experience that, that now is with these people who had never deployed and they're talking trash because I seem to be weak. Yeah. Well, that was trauma. It was, it was reinforcement of trauma and I lost all interest in service. I really did start to become not a piece of garbage, but I, I slacked, I shammed. I got a cush deal as the mail clerk in this unit because I was in therapy. I finally said I had a problem and then, uh, they demoted me to mailroom and I was like, sweet, I can take naps. And I just right. let, locked the room and, and hid. I was not a good dude. I wasn't bad, but I was lazy. And then I started to realize that I've been working really hard. Like I'm going to be lazy, you know, and I just didn't care anymore. And that happened after I, you know, went to the first sergeant who's the leader of that uh, company or that battery. And I had, you know, a report from the psychologist and, and he looked at the report and he looked at my awards and saw some of the action that I had seen. And he said, I just have one question for you. If we deploy, cause that unit was getting deployment orders, they were going can I rely on you to kill someone? And not that we're like these mercenaries, but fundamentally a soldier has to be able to kill. Sure. And I broke down and said, I don't know that I can. 
I, I could. I know that in the heat of the moment in battle, like you can do things. But I also knew the weight of that. And I did not want to experience it. So I said no. And I cried. And then he said, okay, well, then I have no further use for you. Get out. And so my deplo- when, I, when I left the military, it said uh, I was medically uh, retired or discharged. And it says no longer useful for military service. That's what it says on my DD-214. And so I mm-hmm. took that message and I read no longer useful. And I left the military and I lived it. Wow. Language matters. Mm-hmm. Language matters. It's that's uh, after all that you did for, you know, to to uh, the time that you served, the time you put in, you know, the the abuse you received and then to to get, you know, discharged in that way. Uh, that That's that's powerfully. That's uh, yeah, that's terrible. And um, it couldn't have made. Uh, getting into civilian life much easier. What did, I mean, how did that impact your your mental state? I mean, yeah, going I forward. mean, it's it's, and I, I will clarify that I'm not villainizing any of those men, sure. uh, but I am taking from that experience the choices I made based on situations to say like, oh, I see. I left the military with this attitude. I'm a super sensitive guy. I still want to. There's some people that that wouldn't have bothered. Totally mm-hmm. get it. It bothered me, so I have to reflect on that. I left. I'm no longer useful. So. What does a no longer useful guy do? He goes to college and doesn't go to class, but takes the money and uh, f- and goes to some of the classes, but then uses it for instead of rent for drugs. Right. You know, uh, so also gets two jobs to support that habit. But his two jobs are security at a lumberyard and Spencer Gifts in the mall. So not the highest achieving, you know, effort, but it was enough to be, you know, employed and also be able to play. So I was protecting my play much more than my uh, usefulness because I wasn't useful. So what's the point? And then I started to see how drugs and alcohol provided me something. And I'm grateful for what they provided me for. I just didn't quite get the message early Mm -hmm. enough. What they provided was they allowed me to be, for a brief moment, the man that I wanted to be. They took that fear away. They made me not reclusive, but super engaged. I did cocaine. That was my favorite. Because it made me chatty. It made me really interested. Please tell me about your grass. How do you grow it? Wow, that's fascinating. You know, like I was, <laughs> I was like in it, man. And I just loved that feeling of connection and I craved it. But my brain was, uh, it was a TBI. So it's like brain damage, but it was damaged. So I didn't have the right brain chemistry. And that drug gave me a glimpse of that. And it was intoxicating mm-hmm. and I craved it. You know, and I'm spending $600 a week on cocaine, you know, as a very, I'm, I'm going on the GI bill. I have two jobs to support my drug habit and my alcohol habit. Cause you know, you know, you, you can, you can buy a 30 pack for $11 of old style. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. So you're very practical. You know, Absolutely. <laughs> you, you, you are a financial wizard when it comes, when it comes to, to that, addiction. when it comes to drugs and alcohol and getting what you need. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. You can't pay rent. You can't figure that out, but you can figure out. How to buy alcohol or drugs. That's we got this ledger. Let me see here. (laughs) Oh, this isn't adding up. This will not do. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely needed uh, uh, 20. I needed I needed three 20 packs or 24 packs uh, by the end of this week. Let's uh, let's get that. Let's get that money coming in. Yeah, Yeah. we figure out a way to do it. Is it better to buy the two the buy two get one free cigarette pack or go carton? Because how much do I really smoke in a week? And what's the better? You know, you start doing all that math, but nothing actually enhances your life. You're not taking direction, but you get the illusion you are. Yeah. I used to uh, take bottles of wine when I found them at the grocery store. This is when I was, I was drinking and by no means, by the way, are we glorifying this? This is, this is, this is terrible behavior on our parts. This is terrible behavior on my part, but I would go into the, the, the uh, uh, grocery store and I would, I would, instead of looking at the label, I'd be reading the label of the wine, looking like a fine connoisseur Mm. and reading the alcohol content to make sure that I was getting the best bang for my buck. Yes. Whether it's fifteen or thirteen percent, that two percent mattered. So yeah, oh, we're, yeah, I'm a real alcoholic in that case. But so uh, so drugs and alcohol, you're supporting that habit, yeah. and you you said something interesting that I don't hear a lot, but is is an interesting perspective. You said that you appreciate, you're grateful for what those what that gave you. So can you kind of expand on that, and, and how does that how does that relate yeah, it, to it? It's and the reason I have that perspective is I believe things happen and you give it meaning. So mm-hmm. 
that happened. That's a part of my life. I'm not going to glamorize it. I'll laugh at it because I'm healed. I'll laugh at it because that's my shadow. And we have to bring that shadow into our lives today so that we don't just become the super goody, goody guy. And all of a sudden like holier than thou, like, no, I have skeletons in my closet that I'll happily show you, but I've learned from those skeletons. And the thing that I learned from drugs and alcohol was a couple of things. One, like I said, it's, you know, I desired engagement. I desired to talk to people and to care what they were saying, care about what they were saying, but I didn't, you know, I cared about video games, but even those provided me escape and drugs and guitar hero provided me the same thing in a way. And that was proficiency. I had, uh, I was good at guitar hero and I would play at parties on expert yeah. And, and one kid was like, you're like Eddie Van Halen. And I'm like, not even close, you know, <laughs> but uh, I appreciate what you're saying. Cause I was five buttons and, and Eddie, Van, no, very different, uh, uh, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's like, I got those compliments. So I mean, I, I doubt I, Eddie Van Halen could have played guitar hero as good as you can. Could though. Probably not. That's the thing. Yeah. He, I mean, he needs strings. I mean, <laughs> amateur. what an amateur. <laughs> <laughs> But I got that, I got that, uh, I got that boost of confidence and, and I started getting praise for different things. I got, like I said, I'm not a, I'm not a gifted fighter. I just can handle myself. And so also with the army, it was like, oh, beaches in town. So we can get into a fight. And I'm like, why, why? Mm-hmm. Great. You know? And, but I liked it because I felt strong, you know, that you felt about that, that way with me. Uh, I almost got arrested and didn't. And was like, I'm going to change my life. But I got to the party and, you know, I had a felony in the car, you know, but when I got to the party, his head hanging low, the party cheered because my friend saw it all happen, went to the party when I got off and told everyone the epic story of Eric Beach. Hmm. And they, if they could have put me on their shoulders, they would have. And I felt like the king. Yeah. So instead of, yeah. So instead of becoming the, 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 uh, being a transformative moment. It became a reinforcement of that behavior. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But the good thing about that was I have gratitude for not, you know, being caught in that moment. I have also appreciation for the fact that as much as my mind wanted me to, I mean, I, I blocked out the curtains so light couldn't get into my room because I would be on benders and I watched the parade on my TV that was literally 25 feet outside of my house. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to go outside. I was that guy. But the party scene showed me that I wanted more. And it just was a really just ugly way for that. But there was deep conversation, or at least I thought it was. So, you know, I appreciate connecting and having that value. It's just at a certain point, you have to realize, holy crap, this is not, my life's not going anywhere. For me, that was an overdose. You know, that was the part that shook me up to get me out of it. And so do I glamorize that? Do I, am I grateful for that? Not really, but it happened. So I have to be. I have to be grateful that I screwed up so badly, you know, that I made a pivot in my life that wasn't far enough to get me away from suicide, but it was enough to get me out of the city. Yeah. And then that suicide attempt, 2008, you know, I'm not grateful for that, but I have to be because it happened. Mm -hmm. And now I realize that the best moments of my life have come after that. And I would have missed all of that. So anytime that I get in that position again, if I get depressed, I know damn well that if I end it, then I'm not going to see all of the wonderful things that are going to happen to me because I know they will because they've already done it. I've already proven that I've lived more life since 2008, since that suicide attempt than I ever did in the preceding years. And I was, I would have missed it all. I would have missed everything. I would have missed this. Yeah. You know, I'm like, can I, I can't imagine that. So no matter how dark it gets, I'm grateful for those experiences because I learned from them. Yeah. And they, yeah. And for, for those of you listening, that's a powerful point to, to hold on to. If you're experiencing any hopelessness anywhere in your life or somebody you love is experiencing any hopelessness, because I've experienced this too at, at, at a different, with a different story, but the, the same thing that at one time in our lives, Eric and I both experienced hopelessness, absolute hopelessness, maybe in more times in our lives. There was many times where, where, where we felt that, yet here we are today. And I, I, I would, I'm so glad that you stuck around, Eric, to let the miracle happen. So glad that I'm here, to, that, that these are two miracles sitting in front of of, of uh, each other talking today about their transformation. And I'd like to kind of know, because you, you touched on the suicide attempt in 2008. Uh, what was that transformational experience? What was that experience that, that happened that led to the change, that, that ignited the, the change in you? You know, or, uh, it's, a, it's a tough one. Are there, one a, because- are there a, a, a series of them? 
Yeah, it is. It's and the the sad news about it is it took years. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I, I attempted suicide in two thousand eight, and I would math again. Sorry, forgive me if my wife watches this. You can fix it in comments or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I I realize you know how horrible that decision was, and I've also talked to people that said after their suicide attempt they regretted it. You know, it's like they survived it, and they're like, "Oh, that was that was really bad." You know, and I had that feeling of like, I have to change. I, I, I see the hurt that I caused in all these people and I'm really, really am tired. And, and the suicide attempt I realized was it was a call to kill my false self, this way I was being because my inside, my real self, which is a kind of woo woo kind of term, but I was acting in ways that wasn't authentic to who I was as a person. And so I was trying to kill that with drugs, alcohol and with literal suicide. And I said, you know, I need to be single. I need to not date anymore because uh, I, I didn't think I was being a great boyfriend. I just was annoyed with people and just wanted sex or, you know, connection that way. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you know, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. And that's cool. I had a friend that I, you know, hung out with and he's like, you know, me too. Let's just be single forever. And about four months into it, I met my wife. And I think that was the first lesson I got in saying, stop expecting reactions from the world. Stop seeking your validation from anything outside of yourself because it's all false. It's not, it's, it's, it's not the real good shit, you know, like, and then I met my wife and I was like, Oh boy, (laughs) I really don't want to be single anymore. (laughs) So, but then it didn't, it didn't go away. Like I still was messed up and I I've pulled her out of bed because of my PTSD and she was scared. Like I didn't ever like go to hit her, but I woke up trying to pull her out of a burning Humvee and Mm -hmm. she, you know, and the reason I, Okay, so before that happened, <laughs> there was she knew it was coming. <laughs> I feel like, well, shoot, <laughs> made a mistake here. Uh, but I was at a party, and we were dating for weeks, I think. And someone threw firecrackers into a fire. I jump off the picnic table, duck down. I'm embarrassed. It wasn't a full-on blackout, but it was a reaction. She sees it. I'm embarrassed. I run around the house to hide, and I just cry because mm. I was so embarrassed. Ruined everything. I'm an idiot. And then she just wraps her arms around me and just holds me. And I just cry harder. And she didn't run away. And I felt like up until that point, people ran away from me. And when she didn't, I knew that she was the one. And there's other reasons that I love her. But that was the first time that I knew I loved her. And we got engaged a couple weeks later. I mean, we were only dating for a month and a half or something before we were engaged. Wow. But then she was with me and, and uh, she pushed me. And when I lost my job, I lost two jobs. And then she took up photography to start a business so we could afford our mortgage. And, you know, she said, hey, you like video, right? I was like, yeah, it's my passion. Let's buy you a camera and let's make you a filmmaker for weddings. And so we partnered together. And so she became this voice that said, I love you. Let me empower you. And I was like, empower? Well, that's new. I like that, you know? And so it started this course and I was still depressed. I was still suicidal and I went to therapy and, and she went with me sometimes. And, and then she found a service dog thing and I said, no. And then eventually I said, yes. And, you know, Maddie, she's laying down here right behind me, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so she started to find ways and she was, I likened it to this. I found someone who helped me learn how to ride a bike and she pushed me and eventually I was, you know, riding this bike by myself. And now that I learned and I've healed after 10 years or, or something like that. I turned around and said, hey, it's your turn. And because I developed that security. Yeah. We were a partnership. And now she's thriving. But it's, it's this dance, you know? Yeah. 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 Jenna is, a, is an amazing human being. The few times that I've met her and just seeing how, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful for her because of the man that you've become. But not just that, but, but she, you're right. She is thriving. She's building you know, her own career now with through construction and, and, and doing a lot of that stuff. And that's, that's amazing. That's, it's, uh, it, you guys, you guys are a power couple and, uh, and you're an inspiration to Marie and I because of what, what you're doing. And, and, um, and that's powerful. The healing power of connection that you were talking about, of, of just that ability not to run away, but to truly just be there. Um, that's huge. And so you, you, you went through that period of healing and I guess we're always always going through that healing process. Right. Uh, but once you kind of steadied your ground, you know, fast forwarding many, many, you know, years, you, 
you've gotten into filmmaking. You've become an incredible filmmaker. I've seen a lot of your videos. You're becoming, you know, you're getting onto YouTube. You're, you, you started getting into somewhat something of an unconventional um, practice, uh, which uh, is is the art of tarot, tarot reading. Um, and you know, I know some would hear that and say, "Oh, like kind of like maybe be turned off a little bit by that." And I can I can understand that because before I happen to be turned off by it just because it feels like oh, psychic readings, all that kind of stuff. But the way that you approach it is so incredible. And I love the the perspective you put on it because it's nothing like nothing I've ever seen before. And it's so powerful that you've made me a convert on it. So what um, so tell us about the journey. Well, how how is that playing a role in your life right now? It's the place that I go to every day. And it's this idea of the well in ancient society was the hub of community. Without the well, the community couldn't live. And it was in the center of the town. And so that's often where everyone was guaranteed to meet up at least once a day. And they would talk while they drew water from the well. And we've lost that as a society to some degree. I, I lost that well with, you know, with delivery systems and everything. I don't have to see anybody if I don't want to. And I realized that if I don't go to this well, you know, every day, then I just, and that's healing too. If I don't stay connected to my healing, I go through a five-day program, a 21-day program, a year-long program, and then slowly start to dehydrate in my mm -hmm. spiritual sense because there's no one, you know, feeding me anymore, but I have to feed myself. I have to go to this well. Mm -hmm. And it's a sense of ease and surrender that allows you to look at these bitter moments of the past and polish them for the goal that they are. And it doesn't mean that the experience was wonderful, but you can mine something out of it every time. And tarot was one of those things, like I mentioned earlier, that I was interested. I snuck in on a Ouija board, you know, I wanted to be a ghost hunter and all that stuff, but that was not appropriate at my, my, my house. Right. And, and also, you know, now that I'm exploring, I see it's a very dominated by women. You know, it's, it's a very feminine space. My wife is now in a super masculine <laughs> role. So right. whatever, <laughs> just yeah. go flip that, that, that script on his head. But I then went to a program K4 and there was this man named Oli, still is, he's still there. And he's an astrologer and a tarot reader. Mm -hmm. And so he showed a tarot card. And I'm like, oh, I've always been interested in it, but I've never let myself do it. And I find that a lot of the stuff that I suppressed as a child is stuff that I'm unpacking now. And it's becoming my greatest joy. So filmmaking and tarot are two of those examples. And so he empowered me and showed me that I was good at it. Like I really could see the story within the card. And and now I'm just like running with it. I took some time off, but now the last six months I've been like checking it every day, reading it, and then figuring out how I share it with people and how tarot forms the community system of the journey well. And and it's just this wonderful thing that, you know, you can you can look at as a spiritual thing if you want to. You can look at it as divining. There's lots of different ways to read a card. I like to say it's a prompt that your spirit wants you to contemplate. It's a meditation. And if you look at this imagery, what story does it tell you? So like I, I have tarot cards right here and I'd pull one. Bring it up, man. Bring it up. Let's and, do this. And so, all right. So the card I pulled, I think you'll appreciate this one because it's a 1970s deck called awesome. the Morgan Greer. And wow. uh, let's see. That's so if you can see disco. the stash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the disco. Yeah. So. So this is the magician and he's an alchemist and you can see the hand up is as above, so below he's pointing at the ground. He has all the tools he needs to manifest whatever he needs in his life. So if I pull this card and I start to reflect on it, I say, what am I creating in my life? Because this magician says you have the power, whether you want to damn yourself or you want to empower yourself, you have it. Whatever you're telling yourself, whatever spells you're casting, so it is as in heaven, as in your thought, so it will manifest in your life. And so this card, and there's so much more meaning to it, you know, like every card has all of these meanings, but you let your spirit tell you, like, what is it that's trying to communicate? How does this resonate? Because they do, they all do. And you're such a diverse person that if you just sit down and be like, what am I thinking about? What do I need to know? You'll probably say nothing, but you go here, you pull a card and you say, um, ooh, the four of swords. Yeah. Well, this is meditation. This is relaxation. These swords are above him, but he doesn't have to worry about it. These are the thoughts in your mind that say, what are you worried about? They're suspended in air. You have armor on your face. So even if they fall on you, they're not going to hurt you. But if you open up to the thoughts, maybe you can process them or, mm -hmm. or it's saying you need to rest. You've been going too hard. You know, so is that true for you? Yeah, it's not me defining. It's not me saying, Adam Hill, I know the deep, dark, dark thoughts of your soul. It's, <laughs> it's saying, like, what does this make you think? And then yeah. think about it. It's just an easy way to get in touch with your your inner monologue. Absolutely. That's that's incredible. Yeah. And, and that's why that's what really drew it to me with, with you 
is because you said the story within the card. There's a story within the card. And, uh, you know, I, I personally, I'm a spiritual person, uh, but, but the, the beauty in it is, is that you don't, it doesn't feel like you have to be spiritual in this because we all have these, these things that these thoughts that are rolling around in our mind constantly, and they're, they're jumbled up and they're not organized. And all we need a lot of times is just something to organize that thought. And if it's a card in front of us that has three swords over a man who's sleeping with armor, you know, with, with a, with a helmet on, you know, that might just be enough to, to narrow our focus onto something that will help us to organize those thoughts and discussing that with another person. I mean, we can just talk for hours just about that card. Yeah. And that's, that's the beauty of it. it. It's, it's a conversation piece that has a purpose and that seems to be the power of tarot and the power of the message that you're delivering. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And it takes it out. It takes me out of the equation. Like I do this thing where I like to take two cards and then I let them, what, what story is this? It's a scene from a movie. A card is a scene from a movie. What does this movie mean to you? And yeah. If I have two of those, what are they saying to each other? It changes the meaning. And now you have this monologue, the psychodrama playing out before your eyes and you're like, oh my God, I do that. Right. You know, because we, I believe in the collective unconscious and I do believe there's a spiritual element to the cards and it's being led to certain things and then unlocking certain parts of yourself. But it's the power of that. It's that conversation. It's the it's the dance that we play with the inner monologue and being able to bring awareness to it allows us to make choices, allows us to take the fear out of it and get into that kind of flow state of now it's not me saying, Adam Hill, I see you messing up in this area in your life. And you're like, well, screw you, Eric. But if right. I'm like, well, let's just pull a card, you know, oh, the this, I think what this is saying, does this resonate with you? And you're like, actually, yeah, it kind of does. I can hmm. see that. It's not, it's not me jumping on you saying this. It's saying, let's just talk about a prompt. And then it's less aggressive. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a great point that, it, yeah, if you put something in between you and the problem or, or you and, and the issue, you and the personal, you know, from a friend standpoint, you can, you can get really personal, but, you know, but if there's a card there, it's like, yeah, what's, you know, let's, let's talk about what's bringing this up. Obviously something brings you here for that. That's uh that's powerful. Uh, and, uh, uh, man, I know, I know we're getting to the end of our hour here and, th and there's so much more we could dig into. <laughs> and I mean, we didn't even touch on Iron Man. We didn't touch on a lot of the stuff. So there will definitely be a part two on this, but I do want to ask, um, you know, just one final question of you. If you, if you, uh, if you could tell if you go back to that, in that time where you were hurt, where you were in pain, where you were, where you were suffering, where you were at your lowest. Right now, Eric Beach, who is thriving, who is doing so well in, in his life and, and has a family. What would you tell to that to that person, that person who's living in fear, how to rise above it? Mm, that's a really good question. I've contemplated that and it's really hard to sit with that. Uh, but in Ironman France, I did that. It was at the marathon. It was the last 5K or the last 10K. And I was going to miss cutoff time. And the boy in me that was scared came out and I was, I was crying on the course and I was begging for someone to pull me off the course. I even staggered towards the medics and they didn't see me. And I was like, well, okay, whatever. You know, yeah, I just keep walking. And I just kept walking. And eventually I started running because this person on the other side of the course said, I kept my watch is dead. Yeah. Last for nine hours. I'm in 15 hours and whatever. And so I was like, where how much time? And everyone's French in France, which is weird, right? Weird. Yeah. Why would yeah. that be the case? <laughs> so I'm like, why don't you speak English? Oh. And they're like, oh, c'est vrai que mal is yet. And I'm like, damn it. <laughs> and so I'm like, when is cut off? What time is it? And then finally someone was like, you have perfect time. You have enough. If you do not stop running, you know, you will compete. Go, you can do it, America. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I start running. But the boy in me was saying, but you can't. It's, it hurts too bad. I had to jump up a curb to do the turnaround for the last 5K. And that almost put me on the ground jumping down it. I was like, how can I do this? And I'm not going to do it. And I'm like, we can do it. Be a machine and hope you're wrong. And that it's 17 hours, not a 16 hour cutoff. Be a machine. Just keep moving forward. But then this lady came up and was like, I was like, am I cut off? Yeah, I missed it. No, you have 800 meters left. You know, you just don't stop. And I'm running and I hear the announcers in German, you know, and I'm like, help. Long as that. <laughs> and then finally they're like two minutes or something and they were wrong thank god and i'm like and i'm sprinting like just everything i have just pain all the way through my body and the boy is like gang stop this hurts too much 
And I'm like, we can do this. And I get there and then I hear I was wrong. It wasn't two minutes. They actually had a mistake in it and it was 10 minutes. Oh, yeah, great timing, extra, by the way. Good uh-huh. timing on making a mistake, timekeeper. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've got this. So I'm sprinting and I, I, I fell across that finish line almost. My wife catches me and stuff. And I went to the hospital because my body was, my kidneys were shutting down in Jeez. a sense. Like not like, you know, I'm going to die away, but I was bad. I was in a bad condition. And I, in that moment, answered that question. What would I tell myself? Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'm not an Ironman today if I didn't keep walking. When I wanted to quit, if I just didn't take stupid little shuffle steps, Mm -hmm. I just kept moving forward. And I did that through pain and anguish. And crossing that finish line, it's not always an Ironman. Sometimes it's just making someone laugh. Hold on to those moments and keep fucking walking. Because if you keep walking, you're guaranteed to succeed. If you keep walking, you will succeed. If you stop walking, you will die. You will perish. That's when it ends is when you stop. That's the only way to guarantee failure. You're not a failure. You're a strong kid. You're just going through a lot of shit right now. And in time, you'll see that this was a gift and you're going to help so many people. But just keep walking a little (laughs) bit further. And then when you want to quit, just keep going a little bit further. And find the small wins. Because it's not always glamorous. Even when it is, it sucks. People are going to hate you for no reason, regardless of what you've gone through in life. Mm-hmm. And could I have accepted that? I don't know. But I must have because I did it. Yeah. You did it because you're a strong man, Eric Beach. And I wish you could tell my younger self that as well, because it's a powerful <laughs> message. And I'm so glad that you're delivering it to the world because it's a, it's a message that everybody needs to hear. I want my kids to hear it. I want your kids to hear it. I want the world to hear it. And uh, I, I hope that you listening out here have, you know, gotten some something important from Eric. And Eric, where can where can people find you? Where where can they go to the journey? Well, what, what, where can they find you? Instagram is the dot journey dot well. I hate that I had to do that, but some stupid <laughs> account did like two posts three years ago, ten years ago, and I can't use it. So Damn. it's the dot journey dot well, and then uh, on YouTube it's the journey well, and that should come up, I think. If not, you just have to look for a picture of me like cropped like this. Nice. Well, I we think w- it's more like this. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, look for that, good- and that's that's it. It's a great channel. Please check it out, and please check everything that Eric does out. You will not be disappointed. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining us today on the Flow Over Fear podcast. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Flow Over Fear podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. I will be so grateful if you do. And I'll look forward to bringing you more value in our next episode. I'll see you then.